Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to another episode of the Nature Photographer podcast brought to you by NAMPA, the North American Photography Association, and the guys at Wild and Exposed, our partners in producing this podcast. Tonight, we're pretty excited about having Not Patong join us, who has lots of fun, fun projects that I've admired for a pretty long time. And I know Nop and Ron, who is also joining us tonight, Ron Hayes, um, he, all three of us have actually done quite a bit of photography with sage grouse. So um. So why don't we just jump right in and kind of get a little bit of your background, Nop. Tell us a little bit about what you do these days and how you kind of arrived at being a photojournalist that also has a specialty in grassland birds. Yeah, well, thank you, Don. Thank you for having me for this program. It's, uh, well, I, my background is different than most, you know. Um, I, my background, actually, I, I was born in Thailand and I came to the U.S. in 1983. Um, and um, so I started as a graphic design. Actually, I want to be a graphic artist until later on my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now, told me that I was much better at taking photos than doing graphic design. <laughs> so and then I started to join a school uh, journalism program. I took some photography class. Well, I had my a lot of photography class back when I grew up in Thailand. I went to art school. So I, I have pretty strong in photography, um, but I started learning about photojournalism and the ethnic of photojournalism. And, and at the time, as you're aware, you know, most people can't get job being photographer. The only way to do it is working for newspapers. So, um, so I was working for daily newspapers so for many, many years, actually, um, before um, even I started working for the Missouri Department of Conservation for 16 years now. But with the Prairie Grouse project was kind of interesting because it's kind of fallen my lap by accident, actually. Um, I was working for a daily newspaper at the time in Southwest Missouri, and my editor came to me one day, proposed me an idea, said, hey, Nob, um, I know you love photographing wildlife, and I've been doing wildlife photography for a long, long time, and I love taking photos of you know, different things, wolf and bear and things like that. And she said, I have a perfect project put for you. Would you like to go photograph a prairie chicken? And I was like, a what? And it's like, what prairie chicken? And it's like, well, it's a grouse that live on grassland, in native grassland. And I thought it was a chicken that live on grass. You know, I didn't know anything about it. And he said, well, the only way to photograph this bird is you have to go talk to this local man. Who, 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 who I mean, he knew a lot about prairie chicken. He said, you need to go talk to him and he can tell you all about it. So I went to spoke, I went to kind of talk to him, have a short interview with him. And he told me about, oh yeah, to photograph this bird, you have to set the photo blind. And you have to be in a blind before they show up, and especially in the springtime, um, from March until May, early May. And um, so I set my blind and went back the next morning before sunrise, and I walk in my blind. Didn't know what to expect, literally sit in the dark. And as if anybody experienced that, sit in the dark in the blind, it's very, very unique, especially in the springtime. It's nice and cool morning, and you can hear a metal lark. And all of a sudden, I hear this booming sound. I, I didn't know what it was until... My eyes started to adjust the dark. I could see the prairie chicken dancing. And I was literally hooked since, you know. I was just like, wow, this is amazing. What are these birds doing? Is they dancing? They're stomping the feet, you know. They expand the air sac and make this cool booming sound. And uh, and I start photographing. I just keep 
going back, you know, every little every morning and became my own personal project, even after I finished my assignment in newspaper. And up to my second years, um, my my wife, um, that time was my fiance, actually told me, you know what, you really like this bird, why don't you do a project on it, do a book? And I thought, who would want to do a book on prairie chicken, you know? And whenever I mentioned that, I mean, I thought, well, maybe I could, you know? So I started taking photo more and more, and that before I photographed sage grouse or anything out. And, um, and up until later on, I started talking to several of my friends and my colleagues, and many of them kind of laughed off, kind of like, well, who wants to build a book on prairie chicken, you know? And I thought it was kind of a joke. I think, no, 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 you know, we, we see so many photo book of wolf and bear and, and all the big game, you know, what they call sexy wildlife, but why not on this thing that nobody really care? So, and, and in my third years, I started to expand my project, and that was in 2001, you know, and, uh, and then I started to expand to Lassa Prairie again and Sage Ground, the Gunnison Sage Ground, the Atwater Prairie again. And before I knew it, it, 11 years later, I had my first book, you know, and that's what took my, my first book, basically focused on the dance and the conservation concern about all this species of prairie ground that live across North America. And uh, after I finished the book, I told myself, I'm done. I don't want to do any more book. And if you're working on a book, it's great, but it's very exhausting, you know, for 11 years, I travel and shooting on my own time, you know. I had my, I, I had my full-time job, but that was my side job that I, on my own project and thing. And, um, but after I done my first book, I thought, I, I'm done. I don't want to do any more grouse book, you know. And, and one of my friends kind of keep teasing me, are you, are you sure? You know, I said, I'm pretty sure. So I went back to Wyoming in 2000. 13 or 14, uh, after my, my first book published, um, and to photograph sage ground. And, uh, and it's kind of like Donna on me saying, you know what, I should focus on one species. And sage grouse is kind of, kind of a unique species in many ways because, you know, the conservation concern, very big deal in the West. And, uh, and I said, you know, I need to focus more on a life cycle and also connection with the Native American and all the conservation going on with sage ground, both for and against and you know, not just point finger in one way or another, just focus on different uh, thing about what these birds are about. And and the thing I learned all the time is that it's hard for people to care about things when they don't know what it is. And that what became my goal. I want to show people what these birds are about, how amazing they are and how connect to different things in, in terms of Native American. So so that became my second project, and that project took me five years. I have actually both of your books, and for anybody that hasn't seen them, they are gorgeous. And they tell a really, really comprehensive natural history story, too, in addition to some of the conservation information. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's but that's part of my goal, too, that when I finish the project, uh, as you know, when you work on a project like that, it, it, it kept me focused for so long, which is good. I think I recommend any photographer work on any project have something that have purpose have sort of goal and purpose and become your passion and it's that it's showing your images and allow you to really express yourself about the issue that you really care in that case it's the, the grouch you know stage grouch the prairie chicken and uh it allowed me to really show who i really am and what i really care about and the hard part of producing book to me is that um, you can have all wonderful images, but it doesn't work together. So my goal, in fact, <laughs> I have to give a, this, the two books credit to my wife. Actually, she was a project manager, and uh, and she's not a photographer by train, but she know what good photo look like. 
and she and I would fought over what images have to go on the book. And I have so many favorite images, you know, that I really like. And we photographers, we always do that. We, we spend months and years to get certain photographs. But she looked at them and said, but they're not, they don't tell me anything. And it's like, no, I really like this. And no, nope. said, no, nope, it doesn't work. It can't go on the page, you know. So, uh, and, and she was right. And because, because at the end of the product, the images from page one to page two to page three, they all tell story and they all kind of tell in a structured way that's easy to follow. And, uh, and my wife's job is in e-learning and she's really good at seeing the whole picture of it. And I have really several good friends who look at my images too with a more critical thinking, you know, because photographer, we can be very, very biased when we look at our images because we always think, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. But to other people, they don't care too much how much time you spend years and whatever you know, in the field. But if it doesn't speak to them, it doesn't communicate, it doesn't work, you know. And that's kind of go back to the principle of photojournalism too. It has to tell the story. So whenever I shoot photograph, I always try to think in terms of what I want to show the reader. What kind of thing, what kind of message I want to convey my message to the reader. Yes, this thing needs to be saved. Yes, this thing in trouble. Or yes, this thing live in this beautiful habitat that... It's about to be gone. So that's my goal for that project. I read, when I first became aware of your work, actually, I read a story in Wyoming Wildlife Magazine. They did a story on your your book project and your research. And um, so that was the first time I saw it. You used some really unique techniques. It wasn't just going out with long lens and, and photographing grouse um, like many of us do. You used some interesting techniques to be able to capture some of the images that you know, you weren't laying there next to the chicks, that kind of thing, the way a lot of people would think. Um, would you mind talking about some of the techniques that you use that were kind of outside the box thinking? Yeah, I mean, I always try to push myself um, every time I go photograph. Sometimes I try to pre-visual a little bit about what I really want to my photograph to speak to the reader. Sometimes you have to get close to the subject, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of wildlife and environment. I want to have as much as background as possible, mm-hmm. and the only way to do it sometimes is by step yourself back a little bit and look for the big picture. Because as great a telephoto lens, I mean tele- telephoto lens is, I mean, but they don't really tell anything when you see just a close up of subject all the time. You can't really tell where they live or what happened to them. So I kind of try to step back a little bit. Sometimes as I'm shooting my photograph, I will try to be more critical, I think, look at my own images and say, what does you want to show in this one? I mean, sure, a nice photo of portrait of a bird, but it doesn't speak anything. But what if the bird with the landscape, then it start to speak to me a little bit. So I kind of step back and sometimes I use more wide angle. Um, sometimes I will use more like a mid-range telephoto zoom instead of my 600 or 800. And that to me tell a little bit better story. And I also try to focus on, I don't know, the artistic of this animal too. No, not just people always think we take a cute shot. I always looking more color in my photograph or what this animal is all about. You know, to try to really understand why I make them so unique. You know, just mm-hmm. by looking at them, why they're so unique. And 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 I'm a big fan. In fact, one of my and I know I'm gonna make a lot of my colleague. Upset, uh, one because this is he is my favorite photographer of all time, Jim Brandenburg, mm-hmm. um, um, and and I love his style and the way he photographed things. It really show his passion, really strong connection to the subject because he understand the depth of it. And I want to be like that. Whenever I shoot photographs, I try to step back, and say, 
what Jim would do, you know. <laughs> I try to ask myself, so what would he do in this case? You know, oh, so well, a lot of times you have to stare at things long enough and you start seeing the beauty of it. And that's what I do. Sometimes I stare at it. Sometimes I don't even take photos. When I look at things, I want to understand what what makes it so unique, the lighting or the moment or whatever. And like you mentioned about how I approach my subject, I'm very, very careful when I photograph anything, you know, like I say, you don't harm the subject. That's one thing I will learn as wildlife photography. Even when I use a wide angle, you mentioned the photograph of the chick that, you know, that was under the sagebrush. I was shooting with wide angle. I was very, very careful. I was with biologists. We actually monitor the nest for the whole week, and we've been going back and checking the nest because one, a hen wearing a radial collar, so we always can monitor and uh, one evening when we went there, the hen wasn't there, but he told me, oh, I, I'm pretty sure the chick was around here somewhere. So we were really, very careful, kind of like looking underneath the sagebrush, and then I found a chick, and carefully, I was laying right next to it. I took, I know, not many shots, and, you know, I, I could have get better shot, um, but I decided that's probably tell a better story. Uh, I took that shot, and I kind of walked away quietly, you know, without um, causing them any stress, because you don't want to do that, you know, mm -hmm. that's defeat my goal of being nature photographer um, that I try to do put little footprint as much as possible in my photograph. Yeah, and I, I think that's important for people to hear is that you were working alongside the biologist, not not mm -hmm. going out there on your own and and sage grouse have and, enough of a tough time right now. Oh yeah. Everything's yeah. a challenge for them. So and, it's important and, and it's good for biology to know too that um because as you know some biology doesn't like to work with photographer because they think absolutely we, right um, doing thing, we push things too much i always listen to them i always ask them questions say how you feel about this and i listen to them ask them what would they do or what would suggest me do instead of me pushing them doing things they're not comfortable and i don't like to do that i always just would rather being the guy in the background actually um sometimes i photograph them doing some work I told them to just do whatever you do, I'll document you. I don't tell them to do things for me. I don't tell them, can you stand here? I'm still uncomfortable doing that, actually, when I was photographing people, unless it's specific thing, you know, like environmental portrait. I like them to do whatever they do. I think that tells a better story. Same thing with wildlife. I want my animal, my subject to do whatever they do. That, to me, that more natural. And again, I... I like to observe my subject for a long, long time just by looking at them. I, I literally, like, I photograph sage grouse every morning. Sometimes I could literally tell that sage grouse, this one, this one. I can tell by their hair, the feather, whatever, a little bit different. I could literally tell. And more photographers don't do that enough this day. They don't pay attention to little detail because we are always thinking about get sharp in focus photograph. To me, it's more important to tell the story. Um, than getting perfect photograph because in the real nature photography, there's no such thing as perfect photograph. <laughs> that is true. I think the other thing maybe for those, so we're talking about two species that are pretty, um, pretty limited on their habitat range. You know, the, the sage grouse is something that you see, in, you know, Northwest Colorado, Wyoming, um, I guess up in Montana, um, and they are losing a lot of their habitat pretty quickly. And then the prairie chicken, and then you mentioned the, the, the Atwater's prairie chicken, if I remember correctly, that's Texas. But the prairie chicken is the same thing. They've lost that's a lot of their habitat as well. And they're more of a grassland bird. So mm -hmm. Kansas, um, Nebraska, yeah. eastern Colorado. Um, I don't, do they go as far as Missouri? Oh, yes. Pa prairie chicken? Oh, yeah, we have. Not many left, unfortunately. Um, that gives you some idea. Um, the reason why I did a, my first project, because 
I started doing some research on prairie chicken. Um, in 1940, um, a biologist from Missouri Department of Conservation conducted a survey on prairie chicken in Missouri, concluded that we had about 20,000 prairie chicken. That was back in 1940. And, and we banned the hunting season because we knew back then that we didn't have enough prairie chicken. When I start, first started photographing prairie chicken in 2001, we had about maybe almost a thousand. Um, today we have less than a hundred. <laughs> and I knew for sure we have less than one hundred because Missouri Department of Conservation, where I work, we did um, survey um, heavily, and we also did a lot of translocation, which means we brought a bird from Kansas, Nebraska, try to mix in with local population, and they don't do well. And that's a problem with a lot of these birds is that people would think, oh yeah, we can do something later. And I told him, I, I told him, no, we don't have enough time. You know, we have to do, what do we have to do? We have to do it now because when there were animal species fall below the threshold, they don't rebound back because the loose genetic pool, and that's what happened with Heathen in the East Coast. The East Coast prairie chicken extinct back in 1932. Same thing, you know, we have millions and millions of them to hunt to extinction. Uh, and same thing with Atwater Prairie Chicken, they were literally on the life support right now with less than, you know, 50 left in the wild, <laughs> um, you know, and they were on the life support because of their captive breeding program um, that helped them going. Otherwise, they would be extinct probably 20 years ago. And sage grout too, Wyoming have about 38% of the total population of sage grout. If things were to happen in Wyoming, let's say West Nile virus or severe drought, you know, five, six years in a row, it will wipe them out. And if Wyoming population is in trouble, that means the rest of the population of sage ground will be in trouble. Yeah, and it's a, it is it is an amazing experience to see them. When you see them, in, you're sit, like is. you said earlier, you sit out there in the cold, you start to hear the sounds. It's mm -hmm. such a unique, it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so unique. very yeah. unique. It, and, and I I don't even want to attempt to try to emulate what that sound is, but it it really is this booming and a coo it's almost like a cooing sound, and you start to hear it in the yeah, dark. Yeah, yeah. It you have to make you realize that what would it be like, you know, before we all here, human came to this land, you know, this bird was everywhere, you know. And in fact, several places in Wyoming, if you go to sage grouse uh, spring mating area, they call LAC, you know, L-E-K. Um, you can't really, if you, especially in Wyoming, sometimes you can find arrowhead. Um, that shows you that Native American been hunting those birds for thousands of years. It shows you the connection of this bird to the land, that they've been on the same area for mating ground for thousands and thousands of years because this bird are not very high adaptable. They, they attach to their habitat, you know, they don't go very far. And it's kind of like, you know, um, people say, well, why this bird so attached to the lock? You know, well, that's their habitat. That's where they live. They don't adapt well to the chain. And and that's kind of a thing for my book to, to kind of show, not just sagebrush, talking about biodiversity, you know, talking about how many species actually depend on sagebrush, the habitat, right? Because sagebrush is kind of like um, the indicator species because they're so unique to the sagebrush country. If the habitat degrade to the point that um, they're not doing well, that can tell you that if sage grouse not doing well, that means other species like pronghorn, the mule deer, or pygmy rabbit, and other things are not doing well either because, you know, think about everything depends on that. So biologists actually use sage grouse as the indicator species of overall the health of the habitat, which is incredible for me 
as I was learning to shoot photograph um, because I didn't think of that until I start into a project. It's like, yeah, habitat is everything. Now, like every, 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 I mean, now every time I look at grassland or look at sagebrush, I have more different appreciation than most people because now it's like I understand why we need it. When most people look at sagebrush or look at grassland, wasteland, I see of them as, you know, sagebrush is like a little mini rainforest for animals, mm-hmm. um, you know. Same thing with grassland. So many things depend on grassland. Some of my favorite habitats in Colorado are sagebrush habitat, where it's it, there's so much out there. Mm-hmm. There's elk, there's coyotes, there's little ground squirrels, there's all kinds of birds. Yeah, the sage, the sage grouse, pronghorn. There's just weasels and just such a variety, and they really do depend upon that that open landscape. And a lot of people don't know this about me. When they think of me, oh, not like to photograph grouse. He's a birder. In fact, I'm not a birder at all. I'm pretty good. I know what my bird looks like. I know them very well. I know grouse very well, but actually I'm more an insect person. Uh, <laughs> that's how I surprised a lot of people, you know, when I told them I'm more an insect. I love insects. I spend a lot of time photographing insects in my own time, you know, and I actually kind of um, convert my um, my home uh, yard into um, pollinated gardens and and I learned so much about different things. And same thing with sage grouse, with any bird, you know, like insects in there. It's a it's a thing because without insect there won't be any birds. So I started to pay attention to a lot of insects too. Why don't we talk a little bit about your process? We've talked a little bit about some of the photos that you've captured, and you know how how does your thought process go through when you're trying to tell a story? Do you think about it ahead of time and then search those photos out, or are you thinking about where the holes are in the story? Or some other method. You made a good point, Don. I do. I, I kind of pre-visualize and try to fill in the hole as I go. You know, especially when you work on a project like that. And I encourage anybody to when you when you when you work on something that have become meaningful, it allow you to express yourself. It allow you to see better story. And for me, uh, I kind of, first thing I kind of shoot until I feel like okay, I'm I need to move on to the next thing and next thing and kind of fill in the hole. And then I start to lay them out, and I, and you have to be very very critical too, you know. And and I told people, and I have to admit it, I told people that I took a lot of bad photo, <laughs> and but that's okay, you know. And I kind of told people the difference between professional photographer and amateur photographer is that we professional photographer took a lot of bad photo, but we try to get the one that right, and that to me is always we don't hit jackpot all the time, but but we try, and I try every time I go on. I try to do my very best, you know. I try to kind of answer my own question too. I try to ask myself, so what would people want to know about this? Why I want to photograph? Does this communicate? Does this uh, help convey the message that I try to show? Um, and I go beyond just sharp in focus and composition, thing like that. Those are the basic things, but I try to look something a little extra, you know, in terms of um, does it show something unique about why I try to show? That's always been the thing, especially when I work on a project like that. What are some of the changes that you've seen in the, I mean, you've been photographing sage grouse and prairie chickens for over 10 years now. What are some of the changes you've seen in the habitat just in that short period of time? I just kind of want to see if you are observing the same things that. Um, actually 20 years I photographed them. <laughs> Um, I do. Um, in fact, I mentioned about a place in Missouri where I first started photographing prairie chicken back in 2001. That place had no prairie chicken left, uh, gone completely, which is sad because now you go to the exact same prairie, you, you don't hear the sound. You kind of make you feel like, yep, it's gone one at a time. 
and places in Oklahoma where I photographed less tragic and though they too were gone and and several places in Wyoming where I photographed sage grouse, the one lack in particular, um uh, particularly that I photographed spent a lot of time photographing that lack. Um have so many birds and now there's so few of them and, and it I mean that kind of really showed me that just in the span of twenty years I documenting them, I could literally see it changing and I mean, like place in Missouri or place in Colorado or Texas and anywhere that I photographed this bird, it just changed. It it broke my heart to see that. But then I, I'm still optimistic, you know, that's why I, I gave a lot of talk and tried to convey the message to people that there's still time to save this bird. And um and it's hard like I mentioned about, you know, when I give talk, um and I show my images and I ask people, how many of you here have heard of sage grouse? or prairie chicken, for example, and I, you can see very few hands raise up, you know, and say, well, you know what, that's a problem because we don't know what it is we try to save. And that's why I'm here. I'm here to show you how amazing these birds are and why we need to protect them, not just them, but habitat, you know, and some people can say, oh, we just lose just one thing. It doesn't matter. Oh, it matters because they're part of this ecosystem, biodiversity. When you lose one, you start to have impact on other thing. You know, think about this bird at the bottom of the food chain, it will impact raptor, it will impact different things we don't know, you know. And everything have different function in nature. That's one thing I learned over the years of working at conservation as a photographer. I start seeing things a little bit different than I first started. That uh, everything in nature have function. Everything have connection and and I think we all need to do a better job as a nature photographer to really show that side of nature that, yeah, um, you know, and the way I look at them, I, I kind of wrote it down a little bit here, like, you know, like, um, like, you know, promoting a beauty of natural world is not the same as conservation, right? And the conservation action is sort of measuring by a result and the conservation images should alert the public of the problem and point to the solution and call for to action basically you know to make people get into action do something about it and so when i you mentioned about do i see chain i said yeah i see chain and i show a picture to people and i told them at the end of my program several places i photographed for this presentation out in my book those birds no longer exist and that cap you know and that's just in a span of 20 years that kind of start that kind of started to, to some people say, what can we do? I have some people come to me after my program say, what can we do? And to me, that's success. You know, I feel like I, at least if I can change one person perspective of doing something or motivate them to do something, I feel I contribute to something with my image. That's pretty impactful to know that just in that short, and that is a very short period of time for an animal that's been there for mm -hmm. you know, centuries yeah. to, to see it disappear like that. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and the sad thing is, not many people even know about this bird. You know, some of them even gone extinct before we even know about them. Like one bird is like the heath hen. I mean, you ask a lot of people today, do you know what heath hen is? Most people say they don't. Or passenger pigeon. You know, what most people don't even know what it is. And what this bird at one point is like three billion of them, and I told that's half of the world population gone in 100 years to think about it that's pretty scary and and that happened to other thing to something so small and in, insignificant that that people don't know a lot about it it's extinct every day gone extinct you know and i think we as a nature photographer we should do better in terms of focus on things that people don't care a lot about and and bring it up the issue i think that to me that's very important and i'm not saying that 
you know, big animal, I call it big sexy animal. And I was one of those photographers too in my early career. You know, I focused a lot on bear, the wolf, and the bald eagle, and things like that. And nothing wrong with those, you know. And but I feel like there's so many things out there that could get attention to, uh, you know, thing like prairie chicken or even bee or insects that could, you know, get more a little bit more attention. I think we need to pay attention to to those as well. And that's gonna be my next project, probably more insects. In fact, I work on several different projects that relate to insects. Yeah, I worked for the Game and Fish, you know, back in like 1994, so almost 30 years ago. And to look at some of the leks that had 50 or even some of them 100 birds on them at that time. Now you're lucky mm -hmm. if you find a dozen or, you know, 20 in some of those larger lek areas. It, yeah, it, there's yeah. so many factors, of course, that go into that. But they are definitely on the decline. And, you know, I'm always, I'm the type of person that thinks that, you know, as a conservation photographer, we just need to, Edu we're educating the public and in as to what we need to be doing to conserve these species i think if we are photographing them in an effort to get them put on the list we have the wrong mindset you know the conservationist mindset is not to see another animal on that list because when, once they get once they get to that point then of course you know they're they're in trouble and we've got to take larger steps or more restrictive yeah, stuff. And that's one thing too. Yeah, you make a good point. That's one other thing I learned about this project. You know, we like to point our finger to make so-and-so bad guy, to make rent. They all want to make a living. I'm not being naive about it, right? We all drive car, we need uh, oil, we all eat beef, and we we need to. And those are, pe those are people actually, you'll be surprised that when you talk to them, they want to work with conservationists. In fact, I, I spend a lot of time with rancher. I spend time with the biggest ranch in Nevada, <laughs> uh, rancher um, actually owned by GoMy Company. Um, and they all want to do the right thing. They want to, you know, to prevent from being list and they try to get into a program. And we need to get that people to be on, on our side, you know, not just stand one side saying point finger. And that's my, my goal for this project to, to, to show that what can be done when we all work together instead of, you know, stand on one side. I'm a conservationist. I work for a state agency. I can see that point too, you know, um, you know, but can we do better? Absolutely. We can do better. Um, you know, can oil companies do better? Yes, it can do better. Can the rancher do better? It can do better. I mean, everybody can do better. Um, but you know, and, and that's always my goal. And, but you mentioned about the sage grow in you in Jackson, right? Jackson, Wyoming. There's another subspecies of sage grouse in Jackson, Wyoming, uh, and that was also a species of concern to in Wyoming that they've been isolated for other species for so long that become subspecies. So. I didn't know that. I didn't realize yep. that. Yeah, I've yeah, photo yeah. I've photographed yeah. them not not ever on elect, but in the winter. But I didn't know that that had yeah. become a, a separate subspecies. They're, they're very unique to Jackson area, actually. Um, they sort of. Um, became sort of subspecies um, because they've been isolated for the main population for so long. I may not be the right person to go into detail, but I think there's some study and some um, document to show that they're actually a little bit different than the rest of the population. Same thing with another population in Nevada, in Sierra Nevada, the mono sage grouse. that's another subspecies where the Gunnison sage grouse completely different species than the greater sage grouse. That that's for sure. That that's not even subspecies. But yeah, but it makes sense though, because they're geographically isolated. I mean there's there's plenty mm -hmm. of habitat there. 
but they are geographically isolated mm-hmm. from even, you know, right over the mountain. Pinedale is only 50 miles away, mm-hmm. but there's no way for those birds to, to get to them. And that, that's another sad story in Pinedale is the, how so many birds out there back in the early 2000s, they were pretty much gone, you know, they home at 90 or something percent were gone from the original habitat. And that was the probably the best habitat of Sasquatch in Wyoming up until in 2000. I said that to to let you know that I appreciate you getting out and doing that work prior to it getting to the point where they're listed. I I, I thought and others thought that they probably would be here a few years ago, be listed at least as a threatened mm-hmm. species because there are certainly plenty of threats and they are certainly declining. Uh, I hope that you know, at some point in the future, we revisit that and and kind of do some more work to uh, enhance the population before we continue to, you know, to manage them the way that we always have. That's true. There's always a way to do better with the uh, with the sage grouse, especially. Um, you know, I mean, that's the sage grouse is just a very difficult issue because it involves um, big chunk of land in eleven state. You know, and Unfortunately, a lot of land that Sage sit on is on the um, high priority for oil and gas company, which is making it more difficult. Um, so I, I still have, you know, have hope for it, you know, and, and, and just even, even little glimpse of hope, I still have hope. I think we all do. <laughs> you know, along those same lines, you know, we were talking about conservation and how far away sage grouse may be from a lot of people and prairie chickens for that matter, too. But you've actually worked on some things a little bit closer to home recently during the pandemic and photographing birds, I think, um, kind of closer back to you. And I think that's important, yeah, especially yeah. from a conservation perspective, that you don't have to go to big, faraway places to do a really impactful project. Exactly. That, that's a good point, too. Um, and it's kind of funny because, um, like most photographers, I travel a lot, um, being full-time um, photographer that I travel a lot and, and I spend a little time just very focused on my, my own backyard, you know. And I live um, in this neighborhood that uh, have very good natural setting area with the wood and 15 acre of land in front of my house, forest, nice. And, and our backyard we convert slowly to pollinated gardens and, and that seemed to increase the population of birds. Um, but interestingly, because uh, beginning of pandemic in 2000, the Audubon magazine proposed the idea that, hey, uh, would you like to be part of this project called Bird and Backyard? I kind of like, oh, I'm not very birded, but yeah, I can try, you know, but I say not just bird, photograph whatever in your habitat, your own backyard, you know, to show that what uh, professional photographers do uh, during the pandemic when they can't travel and uh so that was kind of a fun project, actually, because every day uh, I just go out and really, really pay attention in my own backyard, um, something I never really spend too much time thinking about it. And then found out we have so many cool birds, you know, we, we have uh, a rare bird in my own backyard and some of the insects that I didn't know lived there and, and same thing with butterflies and bee and all the stuff. So it was a fun project. So I really encourage people to actually spend a lot of time Work on small things, especially in your yard. When you understand what lived there, make you appreciate more and make you want to do more to improve the habitat. You know, to I'm, I'm beside being uh, a wildlife conservationist, I'm I'm really into um, I I really am a sort of activist. I like to tell people that move away from being a green lawn. You know, I call them green desert. You know, change that mentality of having a beautiful green lawn 
change to something a lot more useful, you know. And uh, so and that bird project for Audubon magazine really changed me in many ways to make me think about how to do better in my own backyard, how to change the landscape. And uh, and I'm happy to report that we did quite a bit and uh, and it's a big difference already in terms of increasing the population of bees and especially bumblebees. And in fact, last summer, or last summer, I photographed a very rare species of bee in my own front yard. <laughs> and I didn't know I have. Uh, and I have to send the photograph to be confirmed that, oh yeah, that's the one I said, in my yard. <laughs> I didn't know I have. <laughs> more and more yeah. people are doing that. And I think that that's a, that's a great point. We can we can do a lot more with water than just grow bluegrass. People will be clearly like they'll, they'll be shocked to find out how much chemical we use to actually keep the mm -hmm. grass green, how much water we have to use to keep the grass green when no wildlife using it. That's why I call them green desert because nothing mm -hmm. using it. And uh, and 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 I'm literally told my neighbor that I'm trying to kill my <laughs> lawn slowly. <laughs> And I try to convert them to clover and chain it mm -hmm. to the, you know, different thing. And we, we try to chain. I mean, I told people, if you can set aside just 15% of your lawn into native plant, that'll make different. it make huge impact, you know, and make it more useful. And and I just, uh, you know, I, and I, I try to chain one, my neighbor, sometimes I give a free program, I kind of give talk, a program about how to change your, your habitat. And my wife and I also involved with changing the uh, park in front of our house to more like a native plants, and and people really really liked it. And we can show some example what can be done. I say, well, this plant worked great. You don't have to water them, and they're doing just fine. And look at what use it because it's, look at how many bee and butterfly using it. It's incredible. Yep. I love how you you talk so much about birds, yet you claim you're not a birder. <laughs> I I know enough, and I and but I I told people that I'm not one of those people that would drop everything to photograph some red, but I'm not. I'm actually would rather go photograph something that's small and insignificant. That got my more more excited. Like some like, oh yeah, this one I never photographed before. Something I didn't know. I try I try to think like a little kid too when I go photograph something. Try to be excited about a new thing because. Um, let's face it, you know, we professional photographers, we photograph same thing over and over every day. I mean, new thing that made me exciting. I want to learn new thing too. Uh, they, that, I, that's one thing I told people that to be a great photographer, a good photographer, um, you have to know what you photograph. Spend as much time with your subject and read about it and try to study them and try to understand them. I think that will make you a much better photographer than just go out there and take a kind of a snapshot you know people always have a trophy photo i don't do that with my photo i really really spend time with it doesn't matter to be just a bumblebee or whatever i i'm gonna do my very best i'm gonna really want to find out how to photograph that thing and i like to look at other photographs uh, other photographs that have been taken in the past you know like to see what have been done before and can i do better you know and and give example like i mentioned jim brandenburg name he did a wolf book in 1993 and to this day, nobody can do better than him. And that was <laughs> how many years ago, right? And and I want to do like that, you know. I want to set the bar, and and we all can do better. And I think being good naturalist first probably make you better photographer overall. I was just thinking there was a there was a man in England that did a you know again no travel, so he didn't have any choice but to film in his backyard. And he did a complete documentary on the bees and the different species that you're, did you see that? 
it was insane. I mean, he he had, he had enough footage in the end, did a whole series. In, in that his situation worked great because it really make him focus. It forced him to think small and really focus instead of thinking about, oh yeah, go to Africa, go to these great big places to photograph wonderful exotic wildlife. You know, we know more about exotic wildlife than we know about wildlife in our own backyard. <laughs> That unfortunately, you know, and 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 that was a really good example to kind of he kind of show people that even his own little backyard yeah. in the middle of city, how many bees he got, and he got some awesome footage, Crazy you know, and footage. all the story he yeah. was showing, incredible and incredible. It's really inspiring to watch that kind of documentary. It is. It's true. We don't. We we just get so busy that we don't always pay attention to what's right, right there next to us. Um, I know recently mm -hmm. I was just talking to somebody about a conservation mm -hmm. project that I'd like to do. And, and it is, it's the same thing. It would require a lot of travel and, you know, long trips. And, you know, there's probably a lot of things that I could do just right outside my door that would have just as much of an impact just for a different species. And I try to motivate myself to little project like that, you know, especially like you say, it doesn't require traveling. You can do it on your own time, anytime that, that can have your advantage. And that's the one thing I told people that, you know, like, uh, Time, probably the most important thing in, in photography, you know, the time you invest in that. I mean, you're going to know more about your own backyard, your own thing you photograph than, I mean, anybody because you know um, the area, then you know the timing and, and you spend a lot of time with it. So that makes huge difference. Yeah, something that I've noticed is as you go through, so you recently had a an exhibit in Jackson, Wyoming. Um Actually, I say it was recent. It was actually a little over, almost a year ago now, I think. Um, you, you do a lot of kind of showing, you know, a close-up of your subject in a much bigger landscape. So I'm really curious, are you doing something like that with the insects that you're photographing right now as well? Oh, yes, I do. Um, um, I like to shoot um, with what, with a wide-angle lens. And um, and I like to get as close as I can with my wide angle lens to kind of show sometimes even house in the background or, you know, habitat. That to me is more important than super close up, you know, the same thing I did with my Sage Ground book. Um, but I also did with my, my other photography too. I like to do sort of uh, get as close as I could, you know, with my wide angle lens and really focus on the subject. And, and the result, it, it was very hard to photograph things like that, you know, to especially insects, they move so much, you know, and I, but thank God for digital for camera, you don't have to worry about film like in the past, but, um, but I like to shoot at a wide angle lens to kind of show the landscape in the background. I, I did that a lot That's in my something else. photo too. Go ahead. Yeah. It was kind of fun. Because, yeah. It's kind of fun because you can experiment a little bit, a little bit, kind of a little bit different thing because insect is not as receptive to you know, things change too much. You can use strobe light. You can do a bit different thing. You know, and and for most part, they don't care. You know, which is great. So you can do a little bit different experiment when they focus on feeding, especially like bee. You know, they're really not into like thinking care much about me. I don't even didn't make a sudden movement. They they don't care at all. They just sit there and feeding, do whatever they do. So I can get a little bit closer and shoot and pay attention to my lighting a little bit. So I kind of do a little bit experiment too. I want to motivate myself to work on a project like that by shooting a little bit different different, different techniques and uh and, and kind of type of look myself well and i think I'm by at. picking something that's not photographed maybe as frequently you know like we were talking earlier you know some of those you know sexier big mammals um you know the other thing too is that by 
and I tell people this all the time that I like to photograph squirrels and people are like, why do you photograph squirrels? I'm like, they're actually hard to photograph. They don't sit still much. They, they do a lot of, you know, comical little things, but you can't get terribly close to them before they're darting off on you. So it's, I would imagine you're, you're kind of experience, experiencing a lot of the same thing um, with an insect or even a, you know, a backyard bird type project. You, you can tell uh, when you spend a lot of time and, and many insect photographers probably agree with me, when you spend a lot of time looking at them with the macro lens or get so close to them to see their eye or see their expression, uh, you could literally, I, I could literally think that they, they really studied, studied me as much as I studying at them. They, they look at me the way they look at me, they, they show intelligence, you know, that's incredible. We don't credit them that insects can be intelligent, but they are. You know, they learn to camouflage, they learn to mimicking thing, you know, and 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 how to live the life in secrecy, thing like that. And and it's just fun for me when I photograph insects. It's just like me going out with magnified glass looking at things, you know, and remind myself when I was a kid, you know, growing up in Thailand, just look at all these cool insects. And uh, and I like to collect them when I was a kid, but I don't care. I bring a bride home for a few days and then release them. I enjoy looking at them. And so when I photograph them, I really want to kind of like show their personality a little bit. And... Um, like for example, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, I was working on a, um, a butterfly called Spicebush Swallowtail, and there's such a they have such a cool feature in how they change. They look as a caterpillar. They look like snake. You know, they have big fake eye, and when they feel the vibration, they sway their head like a snake, a little bit to imitate like snake. And it was a really fun for me to learn actually, photographing that project. I think, you know, it's like the other indicator species that you talked about in the sagebrush. Um, you know, like the, the, the jumping mice or jumping rats, kangaroo rats and, mm -hmm. and jumping mice. Those are species that get overlooked far too often. But again, good indicators yeah. to, as to the health of the sagebrush grasslands mm -hmm. like the sage grouse. And it's, it's nice to hear somebody that pays attention to those little things and I think, you know, the description you gave of sitting in the grouse blind earlier, not only do you get to hear all of those birds that are returning um, to begin their nesting process as well, but every once in a while you have one of these mice, a deer mouse, or I was uh, doing a project with Doug Gardner. Uh, we were filming grouse for a TV show that he used, used to do, and uh, he had a mouse that almost climbed up his leg. He said, I just knew all of a sudden he started moving oh. and the grouse kind of moved away from us. I said, what are you doing? He said, I know the only hole that mouse can see is my pant leg. And as soon as he realizes we're here, he's going <laughs> to run right up it. <laughs> so every once in a while you get to see one of those smaller creatures that, you know, will approach you as you're, as you're sitting still and just being an observer. Yeah. That's the one of the thing that I am. Um... I feel blessing when I photograph animal, anything, whether insects, a bird, a mammal, that when I feel like I make connection with my subject, it's almost like really magical. You know, we all nature photographers can feel that, you know, not just a snapshot I'm talking about, when you really capture their personality, they're almost like a really spiritual to me, you know, when they, especially when you feel like you make connection with anything uh, and, it, and, and you feel like, oh my God, I can't believe that's happened. You know, like you've, you photograph this or the moment perfect 
and uh, and 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 it just that's one thing I I always blessed to be a nature photographer to to do what I do because I get to experience that many time over and whether it's just insects in my own backyard or sage ground in the west or you know and and see all these wonderful thing and it just make me think that you know um, that's why I like to do what I do you know and and just feel blessing to be able to do this kind of job yeah this kind of job and do this kind of thing. And and watching animal and feel connect with them absolutely. And I always envy people like you know like when I, I I'm I'm not one of those photographers that when I look at somebody I photograph that beautiful I always kind of like wow my god the photographer might have feel goosebumps of seeing. When I look at a great photograph, I knew the photographer what photographer feel like as a capture at the moment I, because I experienced mm. it myself. You know that not not doesn't happen all the time, but when it happened, you kind of knew that you. You know, and and I remember the one morning that I I spent a lot of time photographing sage grouse, and rarely I always see them. You know, like you know, it, in Wyoming or in Colorado, it was cold or windy. You know, you never get that cold and calm morning. And I've been trying to photograph this bird in one location I couldn't get to in the past like three or four years because it's so muddy. Mm-hmm. Every time springtime or snow, we couldn't get to the location. And that one spring. Um, I look at the weather forecast. I knew I already have three days to shoot because uh, the window opportunity and the cold, so we could get to the area. So I I drove all night long, left my home in Columbia, Missouri, drove all night to Wyoming, and I set my blind and went in there. The first morning I didn't get a shot I wanted, but I knew the next two day it's gonna be it. It turned out to be only the next day because the following day the weather changed. So um, and 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 I was just sitting in the blind and. It was so cold, you know, like native 20 and no wind. You should know what happened that cold in the spring with no wind. And you could see the one grouse right behind my photo blind. You should try to have my blind playing to the west so I get the sun behind me, right? You get perfect sunlight. But every once in a while, I like to look behind my blind and I have very small, low blind. And you could see two or three of them behind my blind. And the sun was coming up and you can see the steam that came out from the mouth just blowing up like a dragon. And I just couldn't believe myself. My hand was literally shaking. Just, oh my God, it's really happened. And I was shooting and, you know, you could see the breath coming out and just, it's just beautiful, you know, and it's just like, okay, that's why I do right. You know, that's the kind of moment you have to kind of tell yourself that mm-hmm. that's why you do what you do, you know, that, that to, to be able to witness that moment that doesn't happen all the time. And and that was one of the cool moments that I always remember. And just to see you can actually hear them huffing and puffing in the air. Yeah. So cold. That's that's my favorite sound when you're on the grouse lake is when they they'll get nervous. You know, a raptor yeah. will fly over. But my favorite sound isn't the yeah. actual drumming. It's it's that when they relax yeah. and all of a sudden they're about to start again, and then you just hear that. <laughs> And they're sucking the air in, filling those air sacs, and you know it's about to start again. <laughs> and you can, yeah, I, I, I have some, some of them that are very close to my blind. I usually try to set my photo, photo blind a little bit farther from the lock, you know, like like most people that like to be close, I like to be a little bit farther. But every once in a while, I have a few birds that walk right next to my blind. And I remember I had one that sat right next to my blind. Um, probably like within four or five feet and they could hear them clapping the beak something you, you don't hear them doing it often they hear them clapping the beak a little bit you know and they, before they call grunting and all that sound that was the cool thing you could hear the feather rubbing before they're strutting that was so cool you know that's the kind of moment another moment that I always remember was uh, 
it was a foggy morning um and and you know i never really saw it you know and and it was completely foggy and then the sun came up and i was shooting photo with my long lens um and then i realized that what's going on there why the bird all suddenly look kind of foggy maybe my lens sometimes your lens get fogged up you know from the cold and i look at my front of my lens i didn't see it and then i have to kind of look outside my photo blind and turn out it was a little they called a white rainbow <laughs> and it was happening right where the ground was standing and uh, i have a look at up like my god it happened i never saw that before and uh, and it's kind of funny because in the book we kind of end with the white rainbow that my one the person we interview uh, for the book we talking about the white rainbow, and I saw that I said I have to capture that so I shot the photo, um, and and that was a really cool photo too to see the white rainbow with the sage ground right below it and it was really cool. Yeah, for those interested, I think I actually just saw as I was looking through some of the photos from that exhibit I. I think it's actually one of the images that's on there. So if people go to your website, um, which is npnaturephotography.com, there is actually an image that shows, oh, let me get to it, that actually shows what, what you're talking about. And it is, it's stunning. It's a real unique weather condition that just, yeah, like you, like you said, you have this, you know, very small subject in this grand landscape and that's what it is out there. You know, everybody thinks that it's this, wide open it is a wide open landscape but that there's yeah. not much there and there is just so much out there there's a lot there you know and one of my favorite thing when i photograph um grouse is the uh, the quietness right before they start and then watching the sunrise and that's i enjoy it every morning sometimes i almost forgot how to take photos just because i enjoy watching the sunrise you know just just uh it's just something that um I think that's why I would take with me, you know, that the project that I, I'm very proud how it turned out and I, I, I put my heart and soul right into it, you know, and, and, and I hope it make a difference, you know, maybe um, I told my daughter, I have 12 years old that, you know, maybe, um, hopefully it doesn't happen, maybe um, my book would be the record of what this book was all about, you know, and hopefully that never happened. But uh, it made me realize that you know, as this bird disappearing throughout the range, you know, some of them maybe that my, my book maybe just have you ever taken your daughter out with it's you? Just unfortunate. I had actually with the prairie chicken actually, and and that was a very fun. I, we took her there on uh, on her fifth birthday actually on her birthday, and that was her birthday present. You know, it sounded like a very cool so present, right? You know, drag your daughter all the morning because we prairie chicken. But she totally enjoy it. She still talk about it. She's twelve now, and uh, and and she remember looking up the sky, see this beautiful Milky Way, and then watching Persian dancing. You know, in the morning, she thought it's a cool thing. I haven't taken her to Wyoming to watch sagebrush yet because of timing. Um, because when I work on a project like that, you know, I'm really working. You know, and you know, and my promise I would take her there uh, maybe this spring, maybe next spring or something. I was going to bring her to Wyoming last spring you know, to see my exhibit. And then, and say ground, then of course the COVID, you know, and I didn't want to risk her. And uh, so um, hopefully maybe soon she got to see say ground and maybe sharp tail grouse too. That's one of my favorite things to photograph too, sharp tail grouse. Have you considered doing an in-depth project on the sharp tail grouse or any of the other ground birds? Well <laughs> In fact, one of my friends, uh, he me, said, you should do it. I said, oh, I don't know. I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> Doing book is really very hard work. Uh, people don't realize that a lot of photographers want to have a book just uh, sort of 
um, badge of honor. And to me, it's a passion. And doing book is about passion, you know, and it, it's hard work because you you put your heart and your soul right into it. And, and you want to produce a good book. And, uh, and you know, and working a book is time consuming. And, you know, and it, but it's good. You know, it, it allowed me to motivate myself because being doing what I do, you have to have some sort of motivation. And having a long-term project is good motivation. And I really like doing it. I don't know. Um, it may be in the future. And I've been shooting a lot of sharp tail on and off, and uh, especially the Colombian sharp tail um, that I've been shooting on and off. And uh, in fact, I might go shoot this spring too. I don't know yet. Um, and it's such a short season. I know I run into that problem. Ron and I have talked in the past about, oh, we get together. And next thing you know, it's the end of May. It's like, oh, there goes another season again. Yeah, the weather and everything too, you know, spring and photographing. People say, why it took you so long? You know, Sasquatch took me five years. But because it's short season, right, in the springtime and the weather and everything too, that, that, that you know, that impact that how long, that, you know, you don't have much of the season, that long a season to photograph them. And, you know, when you get bad weather, you can get to the location, thing like that. A friend of mine is a game warden over on the east side of the state. And a few years back, I had an opportunity to go photograph a sharp-tailed sage-grouse hybrid. And... Uh, cool. Wow. Yeah, I've never... That's on my list. I had never heard of one. I know they occur, you know, where the, the Lex... Mm. The legs yeah, were yeah. very close curve, together, yeah. so which is what made that one possible. Yeah. But that bird was so confused, he didn't know what he was, and he would stomp his feet like a sharp tail, and he would puff out his chest and raise the tail yeah. up like a sage grouse, and he just wasn't he wasn't sure what he should do. Yeah, I, it's on my list. In fact, I was hoping to do a story on the hybridization between the two uh, mm -hmm. two different species, especially grouse. When the range kind of overlap, that seemed to happen, especially the place where one population decline, another one kind of take over. I photographed a hybrid between lesser and greater prairie chicken in western Kansas and also a sharp tail with prairie chicken in Nebraska. That was also interesting. Um, but so a sharp tail with Sagegrass on my list, and uh, but to yeah. find one, you have to be lucky, you know. Very, yeah. It was strictly because they wanted it documented for for the agency that I was able to get those hybrid shots. But they they turned out great. But man, it was an unfortunate, confused individual. <laughs> and as a as a male, since the females actually pick <laughs> pick who they mate with, and the sharp tails are probably like, yeah, you're not a sharp tail, and the sage grouse are gonna be like, you're not a sage yeah, grouse. Yeah, that's a thing to a female make a decision. Uh, the the hybrid could be a dominant male on the mating ground, but if female didn't recognize that mm -hmm. being a same species, she won't choose to mate, and and you know so so they can't do anything about it. Same thing, I photographed a sharp tail with prairie chicken hybrid. Uh, he was clearly a dominant male, but female didn't care, just didn't care at all because female recognize each other's species by the vocalization. So even mm -hmm. hybrid didn't produce the right quality of sound, female won't recognize them as being same species. And there've been some study about that too, actually with the, mm -hmm. uh, even Gunderson sage-grouse, mm -hmm. greater, greater sage-grouse, where uh, they play the Gunderson sage-grouse sound to greater sage-grouse oh, female. That's interesting. You know, something else that I'm looking at, we were talking a little mm -hmm. bit earlier, just before we started recording about your show um, that was up in Jackson and that you hope to get into into other museums. 
So if anybody's interested out there in, in having it, definitely I would reach out to you because they are stunning images. Um, but you mentioned that people have made comments about the what the unexpected visuals that they see when they look at the photos. Yeah, um, uh, the museum uh, is a museum of wildlife art in Jackson, Wyoming. It's one of the premier wildlife museum, you know, and I was so lucky to actually have uh, exhibit there, um, six month exhibit, which is considered long at the main exhibit in the museum. Um, and it was, uh, I don't remember how many pieces now, 60 pieces maybe, and some of them are very, very big. Um, so I went there last spring to sort of, to see my own exhibit and it's kind of, you know, as I put it together exhibit, I didn't think about how it turned out. You know, I know the images that I like, which pick this one to tell the story, kind of book actually tried to make it like tell a story. Um, but when I saw them put in the wall together, it was very colorful. And in fact, several people that came to me, some of the museum staff came to me and told me that, you know, we've been talking a lot about your exhibit. And uh, first when they say they're gonna do exhibit on sage ground, they're kind of like, what? <laughs> exhibit on a brow bird? How is that gonna help with the museum art? But it turned out that my exhibit is so colorful because sage ground, of course, have been brown color, but then you talk about the landscape with sage ground, the sunrise, you know, and the color of the sky with bird. Something I try to show in my exhibit to show the bird and landscape. And they said, we didn't realize how colorful. This is probably the most colorful exhibit we ever had in a long, long time. And, and they said, this one guy, he's a museum staff, like he told me, he's like, this is probably my favorite exhibit at the museum. <laughs> and that was like, wow, that's so nice of him to say, you know, I, I, I you know, and but they did a really good job putting content together in terms of arranging. But it was a lot of work too, because we tried, I have to kind of draw the plan to them because for them to hang the exhibit. I don't want to hang picture here and there to like, I wanted to, to kind of tell the story into, oh, here the bird, here's a conservation issue and here how they're mating, here how the, you know, the, the summertime when they have chick, thing like that. But it turned out when they put together it was so colorful and it's just like, that's very true, you know, it was very, very colorful. It wasn't just a brown bird, you know, just a lot of color to it. That's all those unexpected things. So since this is a Nampa podcast, I wanted to see, uh, you know, what, how has Nampa over the years helped you or how have you been involved with, with Nampa? Well, I have to admit it. I have been guilty of short that I haven't been involved too much with Nampa. <laughs> and I need to, several of my friends that told me, you need to join. I'm sort of, most people probably never heard of me, you know, like I'm sort of the background type guy. And uh, although I've been involved in nature photography now for 25 years, and um, I've been doing professionally probably I know, almost 20, 20 years now. And uh, But I need to get involved with NAMPA more in terms of, um, you know, helping organization in terms of, um, you know, promoting the mission. And, and I'm involved with uh, other organization as well, but I just need to, to motivate myself to involve more. And I think I, I that's my future. Um, Only so much time in the to, day, to, right? To be involved with NAMPA more. No, I think we've, I think we've covered a lot of it. It was a great conversation. Thank you very much for your time. And it was great to uh, visit oh, with another grouse lover. Yeah, I think all three of us are. I know it's already on my calendar. <laughs> we try to get at least a few days in and I always keep those from where I live, the, the closest yeah. luck to me is about a three hour drive in the morning. So it's, if it's going to snow, it's, I keep an eye on the, that forecast to try to catch those, 
those snowy landscapes with the birds get the warm warm weather gear out because yeah. it does get cold out there so um why don't you are there any ways that you want to have if people want to reach out to you how can they find you they can go to my website or uh, facebook uh type my name uh it's, it's a long <laughs> spelling but that's only one name in the world actually <laughs> and they'll go to my website um nobody will have that name uh, uh obviously you probably Many people will be found that's not a typical Missouri name. Um, I was born in Thailand. Um, so you can go to my website, you can reach out to me. And I'm a very approachable guy. Um, I'm not those people uh, that, you know, I'm pretty easy to talk to. And yeah, the website will be good. There's have email on my website. You can reach out we'll to me. We'll put those in the show notes as well. On Facebook. And then any uh, links to any videos that you've got out there on YouTube or anything like that where people might be able to see your work. Um, I have a video on on my website on on npnaturephotography.com website. It shows sort of behind the scene a little bit. Um, I need to do a little bit better. In fact, some of the things that my my wife always motivated is that you need to shoot more behind the scene because that's what's more interesting. You want to know what it looks like in your daily routine, walking the dark, you know. And I always kind of like, who will be interested in watching me? I'm not an interesting guy. <laughs> so no, no, people want to see you, you know, and... And sure enough, I use a lot of those videos for my presentation, like behind the scene, or even got my foot stuck in the snow while I tried to walk onto the lack of sharp tail ground. And I got literally got stuck in the snow. And I had a video of that, and people thought it was the funniest thing ever, you know, me in the blizzard and four in the morning, my foot stuck in the Everybody snow. Everybody always, always thinks it's funny when somebody else gets stuck in the snow. <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah, unfortunate. It's always funny, and I can't tell people that if uh, my friend didn't come back for me and pull me out, I probably still frozen in Wyoming somewhere. Uh, the one thing that I wanted to mention is you kind of brushed over it earlier, is the connection between the native populations and well nature in general, but specifically with the sage grouse. And there was one video on your website where you kind of showed. It was a, a native man doing a, I think it was the chicken, they call it the chicken dance. It's an amazing story too, when you listen to the story about how Native American, they call sage grouse teacher, you know, because, you know, the story was that they came to the dream and taught him to dance. So Native American have a deep connection with, with bird, with animal, and they have a dance for each animal and, and grouse mm -hmm. is one of them, you know, and they imitate the movement of, the prairie chicken or the sage grouse is incredible that and and those type then it has to be passed on from generation you cannot say you want to be a chicken that it had to be given to you by by somebody in your family mm -hmm. somebody have to say yep i'll pass that down to you and uh and uh, the dancer photographed he from yeah. he was from wind river reservation and i was That's... lucky to actually find him and he was very very good and I use him for the subject. It took a long time to search for one, actually, and uh, and, and and it was a good to to include Native American person. I have a friend who's a singer, as part of but it's too. it's not just you find the right person. You have to find the right person, and they have to trust you and be willing to to work with you. And yeah, and that's a, that's a thing too. You know, I I, I you know I I told him what mm -hmm. my purpose and my goal, and he was very excited. And we still stay, stay in touch. In fact, I told him at my exhibit in Jackson was you need to come and see you. You have a big picture on yeah. the exhibit. You know, he was so proud of it because mm -hmm. something Native American don't get enough attention. You know, and 
in fact, um, Native American magazine actually used his photograph for the cover last year. It's mm-hmm. called Native um, American Health, I believe. Used his photo for the cover. He was so proud because he he texts me. He's like, I saw my photo in the magazine, the cover in my in in the, uh, some office, you know, in his mm-hmm. uh, That's neat. Uh, in Wyoming. He was so excited, and that made me so happy to see that. that uh, and because it's not just mm-hmm. about the bird, but it's about the people who live in the land, the rancher, the Native American, especially. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to mention? Up. I want to end with the uh, the quote from uh, one of my favorite quotes from Dr. Jane Goodall. She said that only if we understand can we care, and only if we care will we help. And we, as a nature photographer, we uh, we need to do better in terms of using our images. And you know, and I'm not again beautiful, pretty photo, right? But but um, you know, but we have to do better in terms of we as nature photographer. We have responsibility to raise public awareness. And 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 about the series of the environmental problem. Otherwise, there won't be anything to photograph. <laughs> so, uh, so we need to do better in terms of promoting the conservation concept. Not just taking beautiful photograph, but beautiful photograph at place, obviously. But we need to think in terms of bigger picture. I mean, and put your passion right into it. And because whatever you care the most will show in your photograph. Because it will, beautiful. and it show that you care about what you do. Thank you again for having me, and this has been great pleasure. And I promise I will get involved more with NAMPA. Well, if you ha- if you're leaving that open ended, I can send you a long list. <laughs> but but it would be good to get involved. Yes. Well, very good. Well, thank you very much for joining us tonight, NAMP, and thank you everybody for listening. If you are more interested in learning more about NAMPA, visit nampa.org, and you can see the various benefits of membership. And in the meantime, make sure you download and and subscribe to Wild and Exposed podcasts so that you can get all of the nature photographer podcasts as well as Wild and Exposed episodes. So we will see you next month.